Today's been a good day. Now, if you're on the praise team and you're part of the sound or media group, you may be struggling a little bit. But I learned early on, I shared this with Jim a few minutes ago, that the first time I ever preached out of my home church, which meant about the third time I had ever preached in front of a crowd, I went, uh, I went over to a friend of mine. He, had, he was the pastor of a new church plant. This has been years and years ago. And uh, we, we were in a mobile trailer. It was, a, it was a, the, the, the Alabama Baptist had furnished this mobile uh, worship trailer for, for the new church site. And so we went. It was over in the Clay area. I can't remember exactly where. But because uh, I never went back after that. It, it was a traumatic night. But... Uh, we sang and we worshiped. Everything was going well. And I got up to preach and got up, got up to the pulpit and lightning hit. And it hit the transformer just outside the trailer. Now, I'd like to think I had something to say that the devil didn't want anybody to hear. But looking back, I didn't have a lot to say, okay? I realize that. But it went pitch black in that, in that trailer. I mean, I couldn't see my hand right here. It's so black. And uh, we had, my brother-in-law and his family had gone, and my mother-in-law and Kathy. In fact, we had more people, we brought more people with us than were part of the church at that time. And so, Roger slipped up beside me, and he said, you still want to preach? You, you think, you, you know, I said, man, I've been, I, I, was, I was lathered up anyway. I was ready to go. I've been ready to preach for two weeks. I mean, I hadn't had many chances. I said, man, I, I'm going to preach. And so I borrowed a cigarette lighter. And uh, I, I read my text, okay? And it would go out because it gets so hot. And uh, I, I just preached. And I learned a lesson that night that if you don't have what God's given you in here, and you've got to read it off a page, you're not ready to preach. And so I, I've just learned that, you know what, you, you're gonna have, we're going to have obstacles, okay? We're just going to have obstacles. But obstacles, are, you know, when an obstacle, a problem jumps up in front of you, it's just what you're going to do about it. Well, you can stop and quit, or you can try to figure out a way through it, around it, or you can go straight through it. And I've just decided I'm going to go straight through it, okay? If the microphone cuts out this morning, I'll yell a little louder because we've got great echo in here, okay? Amen? If, if We'll sing if we don't have any music. I mean, if we can't get anything, we're going to worship God because He's worthy of our worship. So this morning, we want to continue. We've been in a study for a couple of weeks about the Holy Spirit. We're just looking to see what Scripture says about the Holy Spirit. And we're just, we've entitled this study, The Holy Spirit, A Necessity or Not? And, and really, the question we're asking, is the Holy Spirit necessary for today? Is He necessary for the church? And even more so, is He necessary for you and me? Do we really need Him? Now, we live, whether you know this or not, we live in the belt buckle of the Bible belt. Amen? I mean, this is the center of religion. And I use the word religion purposely. But we live in the center of religion. We, most people in the South have at least gone to church. They at least know who God is. They know who Jesus is. Uh, the Holy Spirit, maybe, maybe not. But they know who God is. And it's, it's a very religious part of the world. There's a church on every corner. In fact, when, when I begin to talk with some people about planting a church, here's the, here's the response I got. Well, why do you want to plant a church? There's one on every corner. And you know what? That may or may not be true. The reason we've planted this church is because God told me to. And that's how God builds His body is through the church. And you know what? Churches live... And churches reach, and churches die. I don't, I don't know what the statistic is, but there are hundreds of churches that will meet no longer after today in this nation. It's just, it just happens. And so God is continually raising up new churches to reach the culture, to reach the people. And so I didn't let that bother me. But there's churches on every corner. There's de hundreds, literally, of denominations preaching variations and derivatives of the gospel. I mean, they've, they've got their own favorite little part of the gospel. But there, there's hundreds of denominations. I mean, you can turn on the, the, t, the, 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 the radio or TV, and the airways are saturated 
with what I call talking heads. Now, do you know what a talking head is? A talking head is, makes a lot of noise, but really doesn't make a lot of sense, okay, if you pay close attention. And I don't, I don't mean that in a, in a disrespectful way. I'm just being honest with you. But you can, you can turn on your TV. You can turn on your radio. You can dial in your computer to the Internet. You can, you can make it happen on your iPhone or your smartphone. You can get it uh, on your cell phone or any other electronic gadget you want to use. And there are all kinds of messages today about five steps to spiritual growth, seven steps to spiritual power, three secrets that will make you an overcomer. I mean, you, you can get all the, the, the steps that you need to be whatever you want to be. And so I ask the question again, do we really, 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 do we need the Holy Spirit? Is He a necessity? Now, here's the thing. I want you to answer that question. But I don't want you to answer it too quickly. Because if you're not careful, you will answer it based on the culture that you have grown up in. And by that, I mean, we're, we're the Bible belt. Do, do, do we need the Holy Spirit? Well, I sure we need the Holy Spirit. But here's the deal. If we really need the Holy Spirit, our lives will reflect our obedience and our submission to Him. And if our lives don't reflect that, then our lives and our actions speak louder than our words. So we want to be real careful. We either need Him or we don't. We're either doing pretty well on our own or we're not. Now if I ask that, I, I, and I, I kind of push a little bit, I get aroused and yes, we do, we do. But the reality of it is our lives speak louder. Our actions speak louder than our words. Folks, we need the Holy Spirit. We desperately need the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, we cannot live the Christian life. We cannot live a minute of the Christian. We can't do the simplest thing. God, I'll just put it this way. I can't do the simplest things that God's Word tells me that I should be doing. I can't do it apart from the Holy Spirit. Over the centuries... Much of the church has voiced her dependence on the Holy Spirit, at the same time, vainly attempted to build her own kingdom. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, we've preached one thing and we've lived another thing. The church, and when I say the church, I mean the church universal. What you see when you drive out of here, what, what all of us have visited, what we've all been a part of, I mean, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying we, okay? We've made a pretty prestigious name for ourselves. Churches uh, have a lot of power in many communities. There, there are many communities across this nation that nothing happens unless the church okays it. If you study uh, world history, if you go to college and you study, uh, what do they call it? Uh, I wish I could think of it. But basically, it's, 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 it's the Middle Ages. If you study that history, it will be the history of the church even though it's the history of the nations of Europe. And the reason is, is because the church controlled the governments of Europe during the Middle Ages. Now, that may or may not be true today. But she still wells a great deal of influence and a great deal of power. She, she wells that in, in local communities. She wells that in states. I mean, you get the Christians upset, you get the Christians angry, hey, you know what? They'll vote gambling down. And rightly so. They'll vote alcohol down, and rightly so. But what has happened is, instead of going after the kingdom of God, she's gone after a kingdom of her own making. And she's filled that kingdom with, with the prestige of the world. She's filled that kingdom with, with larger-than-life personalities. And there's, no, there's nothing wrong with personality. There's nothing wrong with being a great speaker or a great teacher. I mean, I got up this morning at 5 o'clock and ate breakfast, and I watched a guy, I'm not sure where he's from, his name's Bayless Conley, and then I watched Adrian Rogers, and then I, I caught Tony Evans. Now, all of those guys are personalities. Okay, we all have, I got a personality, it's not nearly as good as theirs, but, and, and I don't have the voice that Dr. Adrian has, but, but what has happened is, it's become about personalities. 
And here's the reality. The only personality that the church needs to sustain herself is Jesus Christ. I mean, if I die today, you know what? If this is a birth church in Jesus Christ and led by the Spirit, it'll continue on. Y'all will find somebody else to, to stand up here, okay? Now, that's just the way I look at it. But the church is, as a whole have, has all these personalities. And, and she's welded power, but it's the power of human influence. And there's a big difference between the, spirit, the power of the Spirit and the power of the human spirit, the human soul. Maybe it's a better way to put it. You know what? Supernatural power, the power of the Spirit decimates the devil. It destroys him. Soulish power builds him up, lifts him up. You don't look, if you don't believe me, just look around. Just look at national news and, and, and just ask yourself, how are we doing as a church? How, how is the church at large, how is she doing in the culture that we live in? Is things getting better? Or are things getting better? I mean, this is a question for y'all to answer. I don't know if y'all watch the same TV I do. I mean, I only have three or four channels. I don't have cable and it don't look good. We're not doing very well, are we? Are we influencing culture or is, in, is culture influencing us? Culture's influencing us. So let's be honest. We're not doing real. In fact, I'm afraid we're dangerously close to doing what the Apostle Paul warned Timothy about in 2 Timothy 3.5. He said this. He said, holding a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. I don't know where you believe this. I may be the only one in this room that believes this. But when the body of Christ meets as a corporate body, or individually we are out in the world, we are supposed to walk in supernatural power. We are supposed to change the atmosphere wherever we go. Because when we, and I, got the, I, I listened to a wonderful teaching this week. When we change the atmosphere, you know what happens? The climate changes. And when the climate changes, the culture changes. Our problem is we're letting the atmosphere change us and create its own climate. And that's not what God sent Jesus to do. When Jesus died on that cross, folks, He changed the atmosphere and the climate and He intended for us to be the agents that changed the culture. And He gave the Holy Spirit so that we could do that. But we have developed our own beliefs and teachings that are not biblical about the Holy Spirit. And we've neglected Him. And we are living, for the most part, Christianity out in our own power. And that's impossible. It is a supernatural lifestyle. And if we don't live supernaturally, we're not living out the Christianity that Jesus died for. Now, I believe that there's a biblical pattern, a prototype that God's given us. I believe He's given us that prototype so we could fulfill His plan and His purpose. And I'm just, just calling this one today, uh, the Holy Spirit and Jesus, a prototype for the Spirit-filled life. Now, if you come from a charismatic background, the word Spirit-filled won't bother you at all. If you come from a, from a Baptist or, or a Presbyterian life uh, background or, 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 or the, the other side uh, over here, it, it, this might give you the willies a little bit, okay? Can I just say, relax? Spirit is a word which means, I'm going to use it this way, Holy Spirit. Filled means filled, full up, okay? That's all I mean by spirit filled. Now, what we've got to learn is we've got to go back to the definitions that Scripture gives us for certain things. And we're going to do that this week and next week. Uh, and I'm, you know what, I may get myself in trouble, and that's okay. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, as best I know how, show you what Scripture talks about when it talks about Spirit-filled and the baptism of the Spirit and, and, and what Jesus underwent and what we should be a part of. Because here's the bottom line. Most of the Christianity that I have seen or been a part of or has been 
prevalent in my life for most of my life, not all of it, but part of it, is weak and worthless. Okay, and I don't, I don't, I don't say that in a judge. I just say, that's just a confession. It's worthless. If God's church depended on the power that I've seen manifested in most of my life, it would have died years ago. So there's got to be more. There's got, and it doesn't have to be Weirdsville, okay? It's just we read the Bible and we don't translate what the Bible says into everyday life. Now, I'm going to get on with this or we're going to be here all day, okay? But I've just called this the Holy Spirit and Jesus, prototype for the Spirit-filled life. Now, prototype is an example. It's, it's, a, it's a model that's been built to test something or, or, to, or to be tested and acted upon so that it can be replicated. It can be made over. It's the first of its kind. And, and what engineers do is they build prototypes to test and to learn from so that they can improve the product before it goes to mass production and we get it. I mean, most of us don't want a prototype because it still has some bugs to be worked out. And, and if, if you've ever had a computer, you know exactly what I'm talking about, okay? But a prototype means first. Prototypes, uh, they make prototypes for all kinds of things. And it's interesting that when engineers design a prototype, they usually assign a Greek letter to it. The first one will be the alpha prototype. And then if they have to make another, it will be the beta and the gamma and down the line. It's just like, hey, this is the A prototype. But I found it very interesting that they do this with prototypes. So the first prototype is the alpha prototype. And most of the time, the alpha prototype gets improved. And it gets twisted and turned a little bit and, 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 and worked with, and, and it gets a new name. But it's interesting. There's one prototype in all of creation who stepped forward to test a plan that God had purposed. His name was Jesus Christ. One of his names is what? The Alpha. I just find that fascinating. I, I, I'm, I'm Googling and I'm testing all this stuff and, and learning as much as I can. And I, I just hit that and I think, wow. Thank you, God. That was a nugget worth keeping if I don't say anything else today. Jesus was the Alpha. He's also the Omega. He's the first and the last. He is the perfect prototype. Okay? God didn't have to adjust him any. God just had to say, here's the plan. Go get it. And Jesus did it. Jesus became man. Now, I'm going I'm to teach a little bit today, okay? Because I've taught this. Some of you have heard this before, and, and some of this may be new for you. But Jesus, Scripture teaches that Jesus is God. Amen? Okay? Je the Scripture also teaches that Jesus is man. Amen? That ought to get just as... Okay, he is the God-man. He is 100% God. He is 100% man. That is orthodox Christianity. If a person does not believe that, they are not Christians, they are heretics. Okay, now that's just, that's what the history of the church has declared. That's, what, that's not what I, I mean, that's what I say, but I didn't come up with that. That's, that's been one of the, the, the basic tests whenever a doctrine came out, is that, what do you say about Jesus? Two natures, one man, one God. Now that's, that's critical for us to understand. He has always been God from eternity past. He's never had a beginning. He has always been. He is eternal. But at a point in human history, He became flesh. He became man. The Bible says, we looked at it last week, that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. And God said that, 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 that thing within her, that person within her is my son. That was God. So at a point in history, he became man. He has always been God. And from that moment forward, he will always be man. Do you understand that? He, he will never cease to be a man but he will always be God. Now, that's, that can be confusing, but, I, you know, but that's what Scripture teaches. And the reason that Jesus came 
is because there had to be a completion of God's plan. You see, God gave Adam a job. He gave Eve and Adam a job. Their job was to live life according to his plan and according to his purpose. It was perfect. Everything they needed, God provided. All they had to do was what? Obey. And God says, if you'll do this, I'll do this, and I'll do this, and I'll do this, and I'll do this, and you can add infinitum on and on on what God will do if you will simply do this. Now, what happened? Chapter 3, Genesis. They blew it. First test, what do they do? Well, we don't really like your plan, God. We, we'll, we talk to a snake, you know... We talked to a snake out in the garden that was crawling around or, or kind of stand up on its hind legs. You know, they had legs then, according to... Anyway. He reared up. Okay, now they've t- we talked to a snake. And the snake's got a better plan. We're going with it. And God says, okay, have it your way. It was not a better plan. Look around. We still live in the plan that the snake offered us. You can be like God. Folks, they were already like God. They were made in God's image and likeness. That's what likeness means, like God. But you know what? The plan, there was nothing wrong with the plan. It was perfect. And so, to vindicate God, God says, I'm going to show you that my plan is perfect. And you know what He did? He sent Jesus, who was God, and became man to live that plan out. Now, I know what you're thinking, okay? Well, Jesus is God. Sure, He can live that plan out. I'm not God. You know what? That's what most of us have been taught. We've been taught that Jesus did all the miracles He did, including walking on water, raising the dead, giving sight back to the blind, because of what? He was God. Only God can do things like that. Amen? Okay, I'm leading you all into a place, and you might not want to amen right now. This, this place is a dead end, and there's no hope of return if, if you go too far into it. But the Bible calls Jesus the second Adam, and that's very important. The second Adam. He's the second Adam because he is going to complete and fulfill what the first Adam did not complete, what he failed to do. And so Scripture says that Jesus became flesh. And he he completed what Adam failed to do. He completed what God expects all of us to do. Now, I've already said this, but I'm going to take us a little more into that dead end. But I will say, He's taught, I mean, even into school, in the, in the seminary, in, in Bible college, I was always taught that the reason Jesus could do these things is because he was God. And I believe that. And most of you have been taught the same thing. And, and it, it's, a, it's a good teaching. The only problem is it doesn't come right out of Scripture. It comes right out of human mind and rationalization and reasoning. It doesn't come out of Scripture. Until one day... I was reading Scripture, and the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to a passage in John chapter 14, verse 12. And this is what it says. Truly, truly, your your Bible, Bible may say, Amen, Amen. I say to you, Jesus is, this is Jesus speaking, okay? I didn't make this verse up. This is not one that Paul wrote. This is one Jesus spoke Himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who believes in Me... The works that I do, shall he do also. In other words, Jesus says, you, he's talking to his disciples, and by extension, he's talking to us because we're his disciples. You will do what I have done. Now, this is the night before he's about to be crucified, okay? So he's pretty much done a bunch of amazing things. He's walked on water. He's healed the blind. He's cast out several demonic spirits. He's gone to some towns and literally everyone in the town was healed. He's given sight back to blind, uh, hearing back to the deaf, on and on and on. And he says, you shall do 
the same things I've done. But then he, he, he messes with our minds here. And, I'm not through talking to you yet, that's what he's saying. You'll do great works. Ones like I've done. And greater works. Greater. G-R-E-A-T-E-R. Greater works than these shall he do. Because I go to the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, who believes in me, the works I do, he shall do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. Now, I read that verse, and I got out my Greek Bible, okay? Because I want to know what it said in the Greek. I'm going to read it to you exactly what it says in the Greek, okay? Listen closely. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. Now, Jesus said, you shall do the things that I did, and even greater things. I don't know about you, but that short-circuited my brain. Greater? Heck, I'm not even doing what you did. I'd I'd give my eye teeth and left arm to see somebody raised from the dead. Folks, it's happening. You may not believe it. You may be skeptical, but it is happening. It's happening on the mission field. I've talked to some individuals who have been in those places. They are seeing the blind given back their their sight. They're seeing the, the, the deaf, their hearing come back. They're seeing the lame who've never walked raise up. I hadn't heard anybody walk on water yet, but, but you know what? Jesus said we could. Jesus said we would do what he did and even greater things. Now, that's impossible. And most of you are going, now we can relax. I knew there's something. That's impossible if he did those things as God. I want you to listen to me because if you, you miss what I'm about to say, you'll miss my point. If Jesus did anything he did, any work, anything he did while he was here for 33 and a half years, with possibly, possibly, and I'm not completely convinced yet, but possibly what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration when his Godness, I don't know a better way, his God stuff just began to bleed through and to shine. I don't think, I don't know if that's there in us, okay? The, being God's not there. But the Holy Spirit might shine through us if he needed to. But besides that, everything else Jesus did, he did not as God. He did as a man filled with the Spirit of God, led by the Spirit of God, totally obedient and submitted to the Holy Spirit. Because if he didn't, if he did any of that as God, then Jesus lied. I don't get any amens there. That's good. How many of you believe Jesus lied here? Then if you don't believe he lied, then he told the truth. Now here's the problem. Where, where is it? Why do I not see this in, in my life on a, on a daily basis? What's going on? Well, that's the point of today. Folks, the Bible says, and I'm just going to show you what it says, and I'm going to prove what I've been saying for the last few minutes, I think. If Jesus did those things at God, as God, we're out of luck. He did one miracle as God and not a man filled with the Spirit of God, led by the Spirit of God. We're out of luck. And if there's just one, then how do I know which ones he didn't do and did? Does, does that make sense? See, either this book is all true or none of it's true. I personally believe it's all true. I believe it's inerrant and inspired and infallible and all the other I words that preachers like to give out. I believe this is true. And if this is true, if my life does not line up with this, then my life is out of line. My Christianity is out of whack. I'm following another pattern or another prototype. I'm not following the one who gave us the book. Amen? Okay, it's going to get easier. I'm I'm going to back off a little bit, take the foot off the gas or the brake, whatever it's on. I just want to walk through and I want to prove to you, first of all, 
Jesus did these things as a man. I want to show you what Scripture says, okay? Not what I think, what Scripture says. The Bible says that he humbled himself. Folks, he was king of kings, lord of lords. He sat on a throne in heaven before there was a heaven. Before there was ever any angels or anything else, he was God. And the Bible says he humbled himself and he became one of us. Now, you may not like this illustration, but it'll communicate. He came about as far to become one of us as we would have to, be, as we would have to go to become a cockroach. Now that may do something to your personal image. I hope it doesn't. But just, I mean, he, this is God. This is perfection, holiness, and he becomes human flesh. That's like me becoming a cockroach, okay? That's how far the trip was. And the Bible says he humbled himself, and he submitted himself, and he became obedient to the Father. And in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 7, it's talking about Jesus here. Paul's talking about Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, in other words, he was God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Now, I want, I want to stop there because empty does not mean he gave up anything. It does not mean he ceased to be what he was. God, Jesus did not cease to be God when he became man. Jesus chose not to use his God attributes as a man. He didn't, give, he didn't give anything up. Because if He gives anything up, He ceases to be God. Amen? He didn't give up anything. He chose not to use it. He set it aside. That's literally what emptied means. He set aside His God attributes of omniscience. Knowing everything. There, there are moments in, in, in Scripture where you read things like, well, Jesus, are you about to set up your kingdom? And Jesus says, only the Father knows that. And we look at that and go, aha, he didn't know everything. No, he set aside as a man his omniscience. He's omnipotent. God's omnipotent. But you know what? When Jesus was on the cross, he set aside that omnipotence. He, the Bible says he could have called a legion of angels to come rescue him, but he didn't. And I could go on and on and on, and this is not my notes. Y'all getting this for free? But uh, and the longer I don't get in my notes, the longer we're going to be here, okay? So I'm, I'm going to move on. The word empties means he set aside. It did not cease to exist. It was with him at all times. He just chose not to use it. It's like having a toolbox with a bunch of tools. And when you do certain jobs, you don't need all those tools, but you got them within hand, arm's reach. Jesus had all his tools, okay? He didn't leave any of them in heaven, but he chose not to use any of the tools that made him God. And he chose to use all the tools that made him man, along with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So he, he emptied himself and he took the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, he became one of us. Jesus chose to take on our limitations so that he could be a prototype, an example, a model of the life we we're supposed to live. Folks, he endured the same struggles we endured. He got tired. I'll bet he got frustrated. You read the, the stories of the twelve disciples, I'll guarantee you he got frustrated. He got angry. He went to the temple, to his father's house, and you couldn't even get in. You couldn't get through the stalls and, and the booths. They were selling all kinds of stuff. The Bible says he made a, a whip, and he drove them out. And, and if, if you believe some of that willy-nilly Christianity that he just swung it over his head and they all ran, that's not what happened. He wore them out. He hit people with that whip. You know how I know that? Because merchants won't leave their tables for somebody going, y'all got to go. They're there to make money. Jesus drove them out. So he got angry. You know what? Jesus was tempted. Really tempted. And yet he walked in complete victory. He did this every day for 33 years. How? 
through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Folks, he is our prototype. He's our, our model. So do we really need the Holy Spirit? Well, Jesus did. And if Jesus did, I know I do. I can't answer that question for any of you, but I know I do. So I want to take a few minutes this morning, and I just want to show you what Scripture says, and, and I want us to just walk through the prototype that he left us. And folks, if Jesus is perfect theology, and I've said that almost every Sunday here, if he's perfect theology, and I believe he is, then what he did, we're supposed to do. And if he did it this way, then this is probably the way we should do it. So we're just going to look at what the plain teaching of Scripture is. And we're going to compare the life Jesus lived, and we're going to compare it a little bit to the lives that most of us live. And here's the deal. If they don't match up, something's wrong. Something's wrong. I believe the problem is we're following a bogus pattern. I believe we're following the wrong pattern. Oh, it, it tastes and it smells a lot like God. It has a form of godliness, but it denies the power of the gospel. And so if our Christianity, if the pattern we're following doesn't produce the results that Jesus saw, then you know what? We're not fully following Jesus. I don't care you, what any pastor, evangelist, teacher, theologian has told you. And I've heard all kinds of ex- i got a books filled with excuses of why we can't do this stuff. Folks, I just believe we can. I believe we're supposed to. And, and I'm not just saying the miracles. I'm talking about loving our children the way we're supposed to. Loving our spouse the way we're supposed to. Not becoming uh, French fried and angry at work because a lost guy curses and has a fit in the office. You know what? That's the way lost people act. We're not even doing the simplest things. So why would we expect to do the other things? I believe there's a pattern in Jesus' life. And I want you to understand that. Prior to the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River, He did no miracles. Amen? Now, if you come out of a, of a, of a, a Catholic uh, background, you may or may not heard that He did. And there's some... There's some books that claim that he did, but reality is, Scripture does not teach that. I'm not taking pot shots at my Catholic brothers, okay? I'm just saying there's some, there some books that have all this fanciful stuff, but even Catholic theologians don't believe those. They're apocryphal books. They're not, they're not true. They've got some truth in them, but they're not completely true. Jesus did no miracles, not one. He didn't turn rocks into birds when he was a kid. Okay? He didn't do that stuff. He was, by all accounts, just a regular kid growing up. We get a picture of him when he's 12 years old, goes down to the temple. He's a little different than most kids, but, but he's, still a, he's still a 12-year-old. But when Jesus comes down, says he comes out of Galilee in Luke chapter 3. I'm going to turn there. And I would encourage you to write these passages down. There's going to be several, and we're going to have to travel kind of fast or stay a little late today. Maybe worth staying a little late for. You'll have to decide. I'll tell you what, let's go to Matthew. A little bit better. Matthew chapter 3, and we'll get back to Luke. But it it, it talks about that, that Jesus came out of Galilee. And he came down to the Jordan. It says that John was baptizing. John was, was preaching hell, fire, and brimstone, okay? He was, he was the evangelist on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday nights you want to go listen to. I mean, he's, if you like hell, fire, and brimstone preaching, John was preaching it. And people were coming from everywhere. And they were repenting. He was preaching repentance. John is the forerunner of Jesus. He's the one who goes forth to clear the way. In the olden days, in the olden times, they would send out... Uh, uh, messengers that would go before the king and they would knock the hills down and build the valleys up and make a smooth road for the king to come in. That's what John is. John's preparing Israel for the Messiah to come. And John's preaching hellfire and brimstone and people are coming from everywhere. They're falling on their knees and going, I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm worse than dirt. What do I do? And he's saying, repent. Repent. 
And they would, they would go into the water. He would baptize them as a symbol of their repentance. They were dead to the old life, raised to walk in a new life. Okay, now this is not, this is not biblical baptism like we think of it, but it's baptism. Okay, it means he was immersing them in the water as a symbol. And Jesus shows up on the bank. And John's, man, he's putting them down, raises them up. Putting them down, raising them up. He turns around, and here stands Jesus. And he's got his, his little white gown on like we all use. I don't know if that's true or not. Okay? But he's, he, he's right there. And, and John realizes who Jesus is and says, Hey, I can't baptize you. You should baptize me. And in Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, this is what it says. Now it came about when all the people were baptized that Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice out of heaven said, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. Jesus submits to the baptism. Now he's not being baptized because he needs to repent. He's being baptized because he wants to submit and obey the Father. And there's a, there's a big deal happens right here, okay? This, this is a big moment. Jesus goes down in the water. And, and, and John immerses him. He plunges him. He puts him under the water. And when Jesus comes up, some amazing things take place. God speaks and says, This is my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God's already pleased in Jesus, and He validates Jesus. If anybody wondering who He is, they've just heard a voice from heaven. This is my Son. And then the Scripture says that the Spirit of God descends in bodily form in the shape of a dove, like or as a dove. That's, that's how the writer... And if you go back and you check all four Gospels, you will find this. There are only a few things in all four Gospels, and this is one of them. And the Spirit of God descends upon Him. Now here's, here's kind of a larger picture of what's going on. The old priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, is ending. John, whether you realize this or not, John is a priest by blood. His father, Zechariah, was a priest. So John, by blood, is a priest. And Jesus is coming. Jesus represents a new priesthood. And everything that went into service in the temple, in the presence of God, went through water. I don't know whether you realize it or not, but it was washed. Okay? Animals, priests. And so Jesus comes to John. And Jesus says this in Matthew 3.15, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, I'm going to submit to what the Word of God says, and I'm going to do everything by the letter of the law. And so Jesus is 30 years old. You know when priests begin to serve in the temple? They started serving at 30 years of age. And they served until they were 50. And every one of them were washed. You can read about that if you want to in Leviticus 8, chapter 6. And you can read about that in Numbers chapter 4. I'm not going to get into all that this morning. But this is one of the things that's taking place. There's a picture of a new priesthood. The old is passing away. The new one's taking place. And to validate it, one of the things they would do is they would pour the anointing oil over the priests in the Old Testament. Well, God didn't pour anointing oil over the priests in the Old Testament. Now, this is good preaching right here. Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit, who is the oil. And the Holy Spirit rested on, went into, what I don't care whatever terms you want to use. He descended and fell on Jesus. That's the word that all three of the Gospel writers use, or all four of them use. He descended or fell. That's what it means. And when he fell, when the Spirit of God fell, when he poured, came upon Jesus, he came on, into, in, dwelled, abided with, stayed with him. That's what the, the, the words mean. One of the writers uses literally in. The other three say he came on. Here's my point. You can accept that, 
or you can spend the rest of your life explaining it away. And I've set some really good classes where they gave wonderful ways, but the plain truth of Scripture is God poured out His Spirit on His Son. He baptized Jesus in the Spirit. Now, we all get wigged out about that, okay? Stay with me a couple of weeks, and I'll explain exactly what I mean. That's a, ba- that's a, that's a biblical term that's taken a lot of bad baggage. Jesus didn't do anything weird. Jesus didn't do anything strange. He came up out of that water. The Spirit of God rested on him. And this is why Jesus allowed him to baptize him. It says this in Psalms chapter 40, verse 7 and 8. It's it's talking about the Messiah. It says, Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight in doing your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. Jesus knew the law. He knew what was required. And then the Bible says almost immediately, Mark puts it this way, that the Spirit of God drove Jesus into the wilderness. I, I love Mark. He uses my kind of language. He drove him. Or immediately he went into the, to the wilderness to be tempted and tested by the devil. Luke chapter 4, verse 1 says, And Jesus, now I don't want you to miss this next phrase, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led about And literally, that word led is under the influence of. That's what it means. He was led about. He was under the influence of the Spirit in the wilderness. How did Jesus get full of the Holy Spirit? Well, the text tells us. God poured him out at the baptism. When he was baptized in the water and when he came up, God poured out his Spirit on his Son. And when Jesus left that water, he was full of the Holy Spirit. He goes into the wilderness, and we know what took place in the wilderness. Amen? The devil came, and he tempted Jesus. And what did Jesus do? How did Jesus respond to the temptations of the devil? Jesus turned these stones, turned these rocks into bread. What does Jesus do? He quoted Scripture, didn't he? Now, here's my point. That's only half of what he did. He quoted the exact Scripture that was needed for that exact moment out of an exact place in Scripture. I wonder how that happened. Well, he's God. Well, if he's God, then you and I are not going to quote the Scripture right every time the devil attacks us. Amen? The reason he quoted the right Scripture is because the Holy Spirit ding, 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 went through the memory verses Jesus had learned as a child. Jewish kids learned volumes of Scripture. And so the Holy Spirit goes, here's the one I want you to use, Jesus. Quote this one. And Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Ouch. Two more times it happened. Well, well, okay, okay, okay. Jump off this, and the Bible says this. If you, we're going to quote Scripture, I'll quote Scripture with you. God will catch you, and you won't dash your feet on the stones. And if you jump, you'll be fine. And he says, it is written. It is written. It is written. He quoted Scripture, but he quoted the Scripture that the Holy Spirit brought to his mind. Are you, tr- are you with me? Okay? He didn't just pull one out of the air. He quoted the exact one that he needed for that exact moment. Now, he lived, he's there 40 days. He went in full of the Spirit, okay? Look what Luke 14 says. And Jesus returned to get... Well, I've just read Luke 4.14. Yeah, well, I, I, I haven't read Luke 4.14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power... Of the Spirit. Now he's full. He went in filled with the, He was baptized in the Spirit. He was full of the Spirit. Now he's returned to his hometown in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread throughout all the surrounding districts. I wonder how the news spread. Do you think it was because he was knocking on doors and sharing four spiritual laws? There's nothing wrong with the four spiritual laws. You know what he was doing? He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom and he was demonstrating it. And folks, there's where our problem is. We preach the gospel, not always the gospel of the kingdom, but rarely do we demonstrate it. Now, and I don't mean with all these wonderful miracles. I mean just in simple love and simple concern. 
You know, a lot of times we share the gospel because we're guilted out. Or because we're, we're kind of on a merit system. If we share the gospel eight times, then, you know, my pastor or my teacher will give me that merit badge or that star of good behavior, and I'll be okay, and I can relax for a while. That's not why Jesus shared the gospel. Jesus shared the gospel because it is the good news. I want you to hear what he says in, in Luke chapter 4. First sermon he preaches. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's the same thing that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John said. That the Spirit of God descended upon him. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. That word anointed means to smear with oil. Well, guess what? Jesus is smeared, but not with oil. He is, he's, he's, and literally, he is saturated. That's what it meant to anoint. It means to rub in. To saturate. He's saturated with the Spirit of God. And he says, He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are drowned, trodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. How did Jesus explain what He was doing? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I have, and this may wig you out, what Jesus is saying is, I have been baptized, I have been immersed, I've been plunged into the Spirit. I mean, God's given me the Spirit without measure. I got all of Him now. I'm filled to overflow. And you know what? The works we see, and what Jesus was saying, the works you see are a direct result of my being full of the Spirit. Luke wrote the third gospel, okay? Luke is a physician. He's a, he's a man of science. He's not, he's not a fisherman, okay? He, he's a man, if you read the book of Acts and the book of Luke, Luke is about details. He, he doesn't just tell us Jesus was born. He tells us who was king and where he was king and what governor was this and all that kind of... He gives us details. He's a detail. He's a man of science. And he goes to extreme extremes to show us that Jesus is God. But he goes to the same extreme to show us that Jesus is a man filled with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And you can look at the book of Luke, and I would encourage you to do this sometime. Look at Luke and look at Acts, and whenever it uses the word power, and that's probably what most translations will have. It's the Greek word dunamis. You can take, whenever uses the word, Luke uses the word power, you can substitute it for the Holy Spirit. And whenever Luke uses Holy Spirit or Spirit, you could substitute power. Now, I'm not saying that, that the Holy Spirit is a power. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. We've already talked about that. He's a person. But, but, but Luke talks about the power of the Spirit and the Holy Spirit, and they're the same thing. And I want to take just a, f- a few moments, and I want to give you three examples. And, and for me, this, this just proves that Jesus is a man. He's God, but He's a man, as we read about Him through the account of the Gospels. He's a man acting and ministering out of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. He's a prototype for us. I want, you to, I want you to just look. He's not, regardless of what you've been taught or shown, Jesus was not a miracle of moment sideshow. I mean, when he walked into town, they didn't put signs on the post, come see miracle, we got a miracle worker. Jesus wasn't doing miracles willy-nilly. If you think he was, he passed by one man every time he went to the temple. That man had been there for 30 years. And he was lame, and he could not walk, and he was there every day, and Jesus never healed him. How do I know that? Because Peter and John came along after Jesus was dead, and, and hey, what do you want? Well, we, I, want a, I want some coins. They said, well, silver and gold we don't have, but in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. How do you know that? And that's because every time went to, Jesus went to the temple, he went through that gate. So Jesus was not a sideshow uh, every moment healing anybody and everybody, okay? When it says He healed all, He healed all. When it says He healed none, it's, it means He healed none. But it appears from some of the, the wording of certain texts that there were times when He was limited in what He could do or what He couldn't do. 
You can look in Matthew 13, 58. I'm not going to go there today, but uh, he was limited because of unbelief. And he couldn't heal many. And I don't think that that does any harm to the doctrine of of the incarnation, that that Jesus was God, but he was also man. I I think that's just real. I think that's real. Another example is found in Luke chapter 6, verse 19. It says, all the multitudes were trying to touch him. For power was coming from him and healing them all. There are other times when he healed everybody. And you could literally say, and all the multitudes were trying to touch him, for the Holy Spirit was coming from him. That's literally what that text means. Jesus had spent all night long praying. I'm going to give you an example of it. He was praying, and he was going to choose his twelve. Now, he's God, okay? If he's God, he could just say, I want you, 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 you. And he'd have got the right ones, amen? That's not what he did. He went up on a mountain, he spent all night praying to find who the Holy Spirit, who God the Father wanted him to pick as his disciples, and the Holy Spirit's the one that guided him. When he comes down off that mountain, folks, he is so full of the Spirit, or as the text says, power, that if you touched him, you were healed. That's what the text says in Luke. And all the multitudes were trying to touch him. Hey, if you just touch him, I've seen it. This blind lady was ahead of me in line and she touched him and she can see now. If you just touch him, you'll be healed. Another example of that is found in Luke chapter 8, verse 43 and 46. And, and you know the story. A woman had a hemorrhage for 12 years and she couldn't be healed by anyone. She spent all her money on doctors. That's literally what one of the texts says. And she comes to Jesus and touches the fringe. And literally, we think that that's the bottom of it. He had some, a garment, a robe with fringe on it. It's not. It's a prayer shawl. Jesus had a prayer shawl on, a talith. You, you see them and certain people use them today, but every Jewish man wore a prayer shawl. And Jesus had one and the fringe hung out. It had fringe on the end of it. And this woman just barely, her finger scraped one of those little tiny threads. And Jesus stopped. She touched his cloak, and listen to what it says. And her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus turns around, who touched me? Now you've got to have a picture here. This is, like, this is like a rock star getting out of his limousine and trying to get to the building. That's the, that's the, they're pressing, they're, everybody's jostling him. Everybody's touching him. But one lady touched him. And when she touched him, the power, that's what the text says. Someone did touch me, for I was aware that the power had gone out of me. Literally, I was aware that the Holy Spirit had gone out of me. When this unnamed woman touched Jesus, the power of the Spirit grabbed hold of her. You ever been shocked? You ever grabbed hold of a wire and it didn't let you go? I have. I've grabbed hold of a 110, and they won't let go. And I've grabbed hold of a 220, and it'll let go, but it'll make you remember why it let go, okay? This woman grabbed Jesus, and she got something. I mean, I think she was expecting to get healed, but she got hold of something. And that something was the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. He just flowed out of Jesus. Why did this happen? How could this happen? Because Jesus had yielded himself in submission. And God had filled him up. He walked in the power of the Spirit. And he listened. And he performed the works that the Father told him to do. I've heard this. I've wanted... I'm just to be transparent with y'all, okay? Because I'm just real. But I've heard this from pastors all my life. Well, if... If you've got that gift, you ought to go down to University Hospital and just walk like this and heal everybody. That's what I would do. Can I just be honest? That's just ignorance. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus said, Father, who do you want me to heal here? Oh, you want me to heal all of them? Okay. Who do you want me to heal, Father? Just that woman who has that hammer. Okay, Father. How do I know that? Because Jesus said that. Jesus said, and this won't be on the screen. In John chapter 5, verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself 
unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does in like manner. Everything that Jesus did was the purpose and the plan of God. Guess what? You know why there are so many of us? Because I can't accomplish the complete purpose and plan of God. I can only be in one place at one time. But you know what? We take us, there's 75 of us or so here this morning. We're in 75 different places after we leave here. And guess what? God can touch somebody there and somebody there, somebody there. As long as I'm listening to Him and doing what He tells me to do. That's what Jesus did. You know who told Him what the Father wanted Him to do? The Holy Spirit. Pay attention, Jesus. There's a guy coming up right here. He's been here a long time. He's blind. You'll hear him. His name is Bartimaeus, just in case. Jesus, he responds. Folks, why did, why did Jesus do that? Why did he cast out demons? Why did he heal the sick? Why did he preach and teach? Why did he love the unlovable? Why did he touch the untouchable? Why did he minister to those who have been curved by society because he expects us to do the same thing see it's not all miracles there are all kinds of miracles you know what sometimes in a person's life just a touch is as big as miracle as a healing could be when they hadn't been touched or been told that that they're not they're, they've been told that they're unlovable and unworthy you know what Jesus did all those things to give us a prototype that we could follow I really believe that Jesus died for our sins. Amen? But I also believe that Jesus died so that He give give us a pattern by which we could live. He took our death, our penalty, so that we don't have to die. And it's an abundant and eternal life. It's not just eternal, it's abundant. But folks, the life that most of us live day in and day out is subabundant. It's less than what God intended. And the reason is, is because we just really don't believe that we can do what Jesus said we can do. I believe that John 14, 12 is true. Let's, let's read it again. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works I do, he shall do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. I'm going to close with this and whet your appetite a little bit for next week. I know that verse is true because the last thing Jesus told the people who were closest to him before he bodily ascended into heaven, his last words to his disciples was this. Acts 1.5. I'm I'm not going to read all of it. But Jesus says something a couple of times. He says, For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with or in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's Acts 1.5. And Acts 1.8 says this, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and and in Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the world. Jesus promised to give us the person who had given Him the ability to do what He did. Amen? That's pretty weak. I'm not preaching French up here. I'm just preaching plain English from the text. Jesus promised His disciples, you know what? I'm going to give you the same person who the Father gave me. And when He comes, you'll be my witnesses. You'll preach the gospel, and you'll demonstrate the gospel. Not just the gospel of salvation, but the whole gospel of the kingdom. You'll preach it, and you'll demonstrate it. You guys, wait. Just just wait. It's coming. He's coming. The Spirit of God is coming and the power is coming to do what I've taught you to do. 
Folks, if Jesus needed the Holy Spirit, we need the Holy Spirit. Now, I realize, and I know there's some of you that will say this, well, Jesus had no sin. No, Jesus, he, exactly. He had no sin. There's no sin in His life. So He had the Spirit without measure. Full measure. Okay? But whether you realize this or not, Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sin and for my sin. It's paid for. I have no excuse to tote any of it around because He's paid for it. Give Him what He paid for and then give Him yourself. Surrender yourself. And you know what? God will pour out His Spirit in us without measure. Yes, the Spirit of God indwells everyone who's a believer. But folks, I'm just going to tell you this. You can look around and you make this decision. I don't see the, very, the power of God manifested very much. So if it's not manifested, it's pretty obvious that it ain't there. And if it ain't there, then I'm not following the example that Jesus left. So I need to ask myself, why is it not there? Why is the power not there? Why? It's because of my obedience and my submission. God's Word says, and we'll look at this next week, that He puts it like this. He says, if a, if a child asks for a, a fish, will a father give him a serpent? How much more so will the Father in Heaven give you the Holy Spirit to those of you who ask? Now, you know what? There's the, there's the, the rub. Most of us not asking. Most of us not asking. Don't you hear what I'm saying? You cannot live the Christian life without the Spirit of God. Because if you do, you'll have a form of godliness, but you will deny the power that's in it. And folks, without the power of God, without the power of God, the message of the gospel never gets heard. It never gets hurt. Let's pray.